Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds. I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in ketosis. And reversing diabetes. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. <laughs> We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share studies that we found in the show notes. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook, and we love to eat. Um, we also like to fast. <laughs> but every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. My recipe today will be fasting. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll have a real recipe for you. And how was that? Oh, that was delicious. <laughs> so let's start podcast 119, Nina Teicholz on Dietary Guidelines. Heard you say you're due for a little... So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from the last show? Well, the last show was a special episode. That was the one yeah. uh, where I discussed why we were taking a break. Uh, I think I got everything right, but uh, it was a bit <laughs> of a blur. Uh, but the previous show prior to that was uh, Professor Ken Sakaris demystifying cholesterol, and mm. I think he knocked it out of the park. Yeah, he really did. Mm -hmm. Well, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. A ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you in a state of ketosis. That means you're burning fat for energy rather than glucose. Mm -hmm. And the byproduct of that is ketones, and the fatty acids in the ketones provide energy. That's right. To get into that state, there's a surefire way that we do, which is mm -hmm. eat less than 20 grams of carbs per day. Yep. You have moderate protein, which mm -hmm. is one to one and a half grams of protein for every kilogram of lean body mass you have. And the rest of your energy you get from fat. fat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Don't fear the fat, kids. No, no, it's all good for you. Well, I almost hesitate to ask, but how was your last <laughs> few weeks, buddy? Uh, yeah, they kind of sucked. Uh, so yeah. uh, I, I've just finished an exam uh, in human biology uh, two days ago. Um, it was a 90-minute exam, and I walked out after 45 minutes, and I uh, said to myself, I've nailed this. <laughs> but uh, not all my exams are going to be like that. I've got two other – well, actually, I've got three more exams, but two of them are for the same subject. One's a honours pathway option. And mm. so that's uh, that's coming up over the next uh, week. Um, and then immediately after that, I'm off to Zurich. Uh, for a yeah. conference, so which will be interesting, and I hope to interview some interesting non-keto people, some people yeah, from the right. other side of the fence, so that's going to be interesting. This conference in Zurich is, as you said, um, mm. sort of a gathering of the, the brightest minds in every field of dietary research, right? Not just low-fat, low-carb. 
No, it includes uh, Walter Willett, who my lecturer uh, in human biology nutrition said is the most famous nutritionist on the planet. Wow. Uh, and he's the guy who's done a lot of these studies that uh, shows that we should be limiting uh, our saturated fat intake. Um, hmm. And uh, for a while there, he was very big on eating carbohydrates, so uh, uh, especially plant-based um, and uh, grain-based. So um, hmm. that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, 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 to meet him. That, that will be yeah. a, a highlight. Um, and, of course, there'll, there'll be lots of people like Gary Taubes and Nina and, and – hmm. um, and a Jason lot of and Megan from, are going. A lot of people from our side of the of the of the uh, uh, the game, and you know, it's going to be it's going to be a fascinating conference. It's actually being put on by an insurance company, Swiss Re, and mm. the British Medical Journal. So yeah. uh, you know, it's a combined effort. So so that's going to be fascinating. Uh, the past past couple of weeks has not been good. Obviously, I had a death in my family, um, and I had to go to Singapore. Um, uh, sort of uh, in a rush for the funeral and I had to MC the whole event. So, um, you know, that was what it was. But uh, anyway, uh, it was good to take a little break off podcasting for a while just to get my head back into the space and uh, uh, now I'm ready to get back into it. Yeah. So ha- how was your week, Carl? Well, first, before I tell you how my week is, I got to tell mm-hmm. you on behalf of all the listeners who felt the same way, your message was extremely inspiring. And uh, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for you to be so gracious in that time. So thank, thank you. you. Mm, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, let me talk about my last couple of weeks. The last mm. Keto Mini Fest was uh, last Saturday, and it right. was awesome. Mm. Cool. I made the, you know, the bacon-wrapped lamb chops that I did at Breckenridge and I oh, talked about. Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, except that I did them a bit differently. And this was after discussing it with Chef Rob and Chef Kyle Mm. That the whole thing with lamb chops is if you cut them and then cook them, they they don't, you know, they there's more crust. You know what I mean? But, yeah. You don't get as much juicy lamb. Mm. And so the whole idea is to roast the whole rack somehow and yeah. then cut it and then cut the lamb chops after they've rested. And now you've got these wonderful juicy lamb chops. Nice. So the way we did it was uh, I I cooked off the bacon first and made it really crispy. And you know, the way that I do it is in the oven on parchment, 300 degrees for 20 minutes or whatever. And I made it really, really crispy and then put it in a food processor and turned it into real bacon bits. So Ah, crunchy, crispy bacon bits. (laughs) Yeah. And then instead of wrapping the bacon, obviously, because it's cooked, what I did was I took a mixture of three parts mayo and one part Dijon mustard, mixed Mm. that up and rubbed that over the the meat part of the lamb chop uh, rack. Yeah. And then rolled it in the bacon. Mm, I see where you're going now. Yeah. So it's still bacon encrusted lamb. (laughs) Yeah. Except now it's it's been elevated a little bit more. And so then Mm. um, I roasted that until it was done and uh, let it rest and then cut them individually. So everybody got about three chops, four chops. Uh, I think we did three chops for everybody. Plus, we did um, roasted Brussels sprouts. And oh, you know how yeah. I do that, olive oil, salt, pepper, just roast them. But I made a Bordelaise sauce to go over that. Mm. And the Bordelaise, of course, is one of the classic sauces. I think I actually talked about how to make it. You basically cook shallots and butter and add wine and cook it down. And then you add uh, veal stock or beef stock. I made beef stock from, um, from uh, shank bones. Mm, and Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
It was it was just awesome. So the other thing was that I met Carrie Brown there. Okay. She is a, a, a co-host of the Keto Evangelist Kitchen podcast. Nice. And her deal is she suffered from depression and bipolar for years and years and years. Mm. And then she did some research and figured out that the ketogenic diet and in particularly cutting carbs and sugar was uh, really good for depression. Mm. And so cool. she did that and she lost weight, of course, but also her symptoms went away. Nice. All her bipolar and depression symptoms, just she hadn't had a flare up since she went keto. And she hasn't had an episode or, or symptoms, as I said. So she's dedicated herself to showing people, you know, how this works and talking about it. But also the the whole kitchen thing is like us. She's a foodie. Yeah. And she wants to tell, she wants to get the message out there that ketogenic eating is delicious. Well, it's that also, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's also cooking for yourself is an essential part of uh, of the cure for diabetes. I mean, learning That's how right. to, to use a kitchen to make your own food, to be in control of your food is the essential part of the of the cure for diabetes that's right mm -hmm. speaking of other things that are happening locally and i'm sorry i'm taking a lot of time here mm -hmm. but uh our friend jack chaplin yeah. from daddy yeah. jacks daddy jack went, yeah. uh, keto and he's done it for yeah, now well maybe done. 13 14 weeks wow that's impressive yeah and he's liking it and you know the big advantage for him is he's a chef and he can cook for himself so right there you go yeah, and he can cook for everyone else too in New London, which is awesome. Yeah, awesome. that's right. He wants to get a keto menu going. Nice. So he's all in. Yeah, so if you're in New London and you're keen to go keto, but you want to also eat out, try Daddy Jack's. That's right. Just tell him you're keto. Uh, well, the other thing I got to say is the RD86 space is getting pretty busy, and that's a good thing. They're yeah. opening their patio for business this week. Mm-hmm. And they, they've put an outdoor kitchen in there with a couple of grills that are also smokers, refrigeration, and a full bar. And the whole thing is going to be open as a restaurant seven days a week. Wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. So that's great for them. But for me, I'll probably be doing the Carl's Keto Kitchen videos <laughs> and the Keto Mini Fest events at my house. Which oh, has a very nice kitchen, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, because, you know, we got three weeks to catch up on here. Mm. I also took a remote job working on a web-based educational software package, and I'm having a blast doing that. Yeah. Back to being a developer again for a bit. Well, <laughs> I was always a fun. developer, but uh, but this is actually working on a project for nice. somebody else. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which has been a while. So, you feel like giving away some swag? I definitely do. What are we giving away, Carl? Well, we're giving away a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me, a book by mm. Dr. Ken Berry, who happens to be my doctor. But uh, this book uh, was great when I, I read it, and then I contacted Dr. Barry, and um, um, I actually, he became my doctor over yeah. this interaction. <laughs> and I've done, I've completed the audio version for audible.com. Now it has to be reviewed by him and should be, you know, uh, the ball's in his court. Let's put it that yeah. way. I don't know when it's going <laughs> to be ready. But anyway, that's <laughs> what we're giving away, Richard. Yeah. Nice. So, who are we going to give it away to? Today's winner is Jolene Woodward. Yeah. Congratulations, Jolene. And Jolene won because she signed up for the Two Keto Dudes fan club. And uh, we pick people at random every show from that fan club and mm -hmm. give them stuff. 
Yeah. And uh, all you got to do to sign up is go to fanclub.2keto.com and answer a few questions and you're in. And you could win something in every show. And if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can always buy some online at gear.2keto.com. That's right. And that brings us to... What you got, Carl? Well, this is a very inspiring story that was posted in our forum, but it's actually a blog post. Mm. So we're linking directly to the blog post. It's from Carmine Leo. And the post title is Food, Serious as a Heart Attack. And it's a long blog post, so I'll just read the important bits. But I I think we're going to get... Uh, Carmine on the show to talk about this because it's an amazing story. Mm. At 9.15 p.m. on Tuesday, April 2nd, 2007, just as the opening credits for that evening's episode of Star Trek Enterprise started rolling, I had a massive heart attack and died. Wow. Three times, in fact. I died on my living room floor, in the ambulance, and once again in the ER. Long story full of heavy drama, cliffhanger, close calls, amazing technologies, and personal transformations, but the upshot was that I spent six days in a cardiac ICU and generated well over a hundred grand in medical debt. Ouch. The nurses told me that only 4% survived the kind of heart attack I had. Very close call. Yep. Coming out of that event, I was seriously disabled. A 50-foot walk to the mailbox at the end of my driveway required a 45-minute nap afterwards. Nonetheless, in between naps, I could go online, and I did. My focus was, what the hell happened? Yeah. I had no significant lifestyle risk factors, no family history of heart disease, and had been a strict vegetarian for over 40 years, eating a diet that included no meat, fish, birds, or eggs, or anything containing those ingredients. I did eat dairy products, including milk, cheeses, yogurt, and butter, but those were the only animal products I consumed, and I had them in small amounts. I was 56 at the time of my heart attack, just three weeks before my 57th birthday. All right, so here's the thing. He goes on, but the key that I want to point out is, at the time of my heart attack, I was shocked to discover that my total cholesterol was normal, according to conventional wisdom. It was 179. Mm-hmm. But that I had an A1C of 11.2. Wow. So blood glucose may be around 280, if I remember correctly. And yeah, I mm. think that's about right. Mm. That I weighed about 215, give or take. That I had IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, high blood pressure, serious arthritis, and a host of other underlying conditions. Nobody tells us that half of all fatal heart attacks occur in people with normal cholesterol. And they certainly do not advertise that 70% of diabetics die of heart disease. So that's that's about all I'm going to read. I mean, that's... That's pretty scary for me because my HbA1c was 11.2 when when I first got sick too. Yeah. Interestingly, my father died of uh, embolism at uh, age 57. Mm. So my 57th birthday is going to be a celebration. Yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah, I'll bet. (laughs) But, you know, this, um, it, it has to do with what Nina's talking about, the dietary guidelines and how he got them wrong. But I also am going to call back to a video that we referenced on the very first cholesterol show that we did. Mm. And that was Malcolm Kendrick, The Cholesterol Hypothesis is Wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And he basically goes on to say, you know, here are some 
data from science that just doesn't jive with the cholesterol hypothesis. And one of them was a study in which um, over half of people admitted to U.S. hospitals in a certain time of year, and, I th- and there was hundreds of thousands of these, mm. had normal cholesterol. Right. Over half. Yeah. It's and like 70, so that, 70% or something. So, right. Yeah, significant number. Yeah. Right. And, and if high cholesterol was even correlated with mm-hmm. heart attack events, even correlated, it would be different. So mm-hmm. that's a non-correlation. And you know what that means, non-causation. Right. Well, you can't infer yeah. causation, yeah. Yes, you cannot infer causation right. if you don't have correlation. So there you go. That's uh, that's my mail. And uh, wow, Carmine, what a great story. We got to get you on the show. But uh, I, I, it just sets the scene for what Nina's talking about. So what do you got? Well, mine's actually a call back to our last show. And this is uh, this was a post in the ketogenic forums. And you remember that in the last show, I just took a couple of minutes to talk about the passing of my brother and uh, the fact that his uh, decision for end-of-life uh, support um, weighed very heavily on the family because he looked like he was he was healthy and just asleep. But, of course, he had right. no brain, brain function. And so it was very difficult for them. And so... Um, so I spoke on, on the last episode about uh, making a end-of-life uh, decisions for your family in advance, and this includes organ donation. And I'd like to to, to mention, actually, that that he uh, he did donate. His his heart was too damaged to be donated, but his heart valve uh, went to somebody somebody and saved their life. Wow. Uh, his, his liver also went to a different person, saved their life. And wow. both of his kidneys went to two different people and saved their lives. And oh. His skin uh, on his back was uh, harvested to um, uh, to f- for burn burns victims, uh, and so oh. um, so you know th- this is that that's a probably I think that made me feel I, I guess I, I don't want to say better about the whole thing, but that uh, that was a blessing during the process, knowing that Absolutely. that had happened because. Um, and, and so I just want to read out this letter that somebody wrote in the forum. Uh, this is Jan Knitz, um, and uh, she wrote, um, so sorry for your loss, Richard. Um, she said, I hope that people will pay attention to your plea to prepare their advanced directives. In most states in the U.S., you can find free, valid healthcare directive forms, sometimes called durable powers of attorney for healthcare, online, and you can fill them out. Make sure they're completed with all the legal requirements. Usually that means they must be printed out and signed before a notary public or witnesses. Mm. Your doctor or local hospital may also have resources to help you prepare your directive. I teach a two-hour class on advanced healthcare directives to the general public uh, in California at a local hospital. Um, I teach this class with a social worker and we're able to answer questions about the medical and legal aspects of the form. Um, our participants almost universally tell us how valuable that training is. Uh, so I just want to thank Jan for um, her work uh, doing that because that's a, that's an important thing. And I suggest uh, if, if anybody has any questions about uh, that process, um, um, feel free to uh, post, go to the forums and look for the condolences to Richard and the family thread, and mm. Jan has posted in there, and uh, feel free to ask her some questions. So that's my mail for the day. Wow, Richard, I don't know what to say. That's uh, an amazing outcome of a tr- terrible tragedy, Yeah, and uh, it's really amazing that, that we have the power to do that, and so many of us don't. 
Yeah, it's, it really is the greatest thing that uh, that you can do for a stranger. And mm. we're going to talk to some people who've been at the other end of that uh, decision. Sure. At some point, we hope to be able to talk to some uh, uh, organ recipients uh, and that, uh, talk great. about that part of the, the process as well. That would be awesome. All right. And that brings us to the content portion. You know, what you're listening for. <laughs> not, not hearing us blather on. Yeah, sorry. this is an interview that we did with Nina Teicholz in New York City when mm. uh, Richard came to America in April. Yes. We went down there. We went to her home, and mm-hmm. uh, this is this is it. Let's roll it. We are in the office of Nina Teicholz on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be back here. Great to have you guys here. I remember you taking a vow of silence not to say how messy my office is. It's not oh. that messy. Your secret is safe with <laughs> us and our fans. Yeah. Um, so we, we have a lot to talk about. We were going to talk to you in, in Breckenridge, but couldn't find a quiet place. And you're very busy there. You did like four talks, didn't you? No, just two. Just two? Yeah. Oh. But we're all busy there because everybody's, you know, convening, talking with each other. So. Yeah, yeah, right. Richard, you were just talking to me about something we wanted to bring up with Nina. Yeah, there was a post uh, from the Nutrition Coalition about uh, about uh, sugar and starch uh, causing obesity and diabetes. Uh, that just came out on Facebook just today. So I think that that was uh, the, about this study that was um, at a world wide study based on um, FAO data that it's it looks at all the data in countries all over it was like 153 countries right. and yeah. they looked at so that kind of study is not the best because you can't really com- it's not great comparing data between countries they have different ways of measuring it but one mm. of the things that came out of that study um, was that um, what most consistently correlated with uh, mortality, which is means you die younger, was yeah. your consumption of carbohydrates. And they right. particularly singled out um, wheat and cereals. Wow. Those were the two things they said. Yeah. Wow. And that what did not correlate with death, in other words, the more people ate of it, the, um, the less likely they were to die was animal fats <laughs> right. and protein and, and animal foods. Yeah. Hmm. So that was a really interesting data because, of course, we're constantly told the opposite of that. Yeah, that goes against everything that we're, we're told. We're, we're told, you know, everyone says have a eat a plant based diet. Right. You know? What well, you were saying today, the Harvard Law School uh, uh, suggesting to their alumni. To- <laughs> well, they're hmm. yeah sending a query over to USDA saying eat a plant based diet. But you know, actually, this latest study follows upon um, another one that came out in. August of last year, mm-hmm. that was um, a higher kind of quality data where they actually like ask people what they eat and they do it in a in a systemized way, and that's called the Pure Study. Right, right. and that came out with very similar results from I think over sixty countries, mm-hmm. showing what best correlates with early death uh, and cardiovascular risk was carbohydrates worldwide. And that what least correlated with it was total fat and and animal (laughs) fat consumption. You were saying, Richard, that this study we we started talking about today um, said that reducing America's sugar consumption or the world's sugar consumption has gone down and yet the rate of obesity has continued to go up. But it doesn't really say anything because we know that you have to cut sugar and starch to a drastic level in order to get the the benefits of ketosis. Right. And by drastic, I mean 20 grams or less or even under 50. But, uh, you know, just because overall consumption has gone down doesn't mean that 
people are Not adequately. It hasn't gone down adequately. That's it's a right. threshold effect because yeah. we're still above the threshold beyond which um, uh, we don't store energy appropriately. Right. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that's some interesting data. Like, it's definitely true in, in when I've looked at different countries in Canada and the U.S. since 1999, sugar consumption has been dropping. Right. Mm. And also refined carbohydrate consumption has been mm. dropping since right. about 2001. Uh, but I think... What the science really shows, I mean, sugar is clearly bad for health, but what mm. the, the available science shows is that you have to reduce total carbohydrates. Right. And over a long period of time. Over like a it, period if of you time, eat right. two slices of bread, uh, you know, every other day, that's enough to keep you out of ketosis. Oh, in the context of somebody who's ketogenic, it definitely Well, in the yeah. context of somebody who's diabetic and yeah. obese, right? That's true. Yeah. Right. So there are people who are presumably are reducing the amount of sugar they eat, but are still eating you know, high starch, high, you know, diets high, a lot of bread, a lot mm. of grains. And, you know, you can count like a lot of these people on, say, plant-based diets. They, right. Those are high-carbohydrate diets with a lot of grains in them, even though they're very conscientious about their – probably about their sugar intake, you know. Right. So – I mean, it just – it to me, it says that, you know, that sort of one of the takeaway points is like there are a number of policies now focused on getting people to reduce their sugar intake, reduce their soda intake, and I think that's great. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to reverse obesity right. and diabetes in America yeah. alone. <laughs> I think really we need to uh, – we need to make the diabetes peak bodies like the American Diabetes Association and Diabetes Australia and mm. other organizations, we need to work with them to for them to enable a low-carb option for diabetics and then explain to them, here's the evidence that, that supports that. And not all of that evidence uh, we agree with necessarily, but it's available as an option. Right now, it's not available as an option. Well, right? it turned out that it is, though, right? We talked about this on last week's show, that the American Diabetes Association is now not saying a number, total number of grams of carbohydrates per day, and they're offering a low-carb diet. So they've moved away from the 300 Are they grams really? of carbs a day. Isn't that yeah, what we just I think, discovered? I think you're right. They moved away from the 300 grams of carbs a day yeah. mandate, and they're, now they're, they're, they're letting that become be an option. So right. hopefully the Australians will follow that because they, they all share the same um, the same same research. For us, our mission is to try and make sure that diabetics have this available as an option. Right. So I know when I was first diagnosed with diabetes, I was put on a, a uh, low-fat diet that was uh, 300 grams of carbohydrates a day, mm. and I knew that Atkins in the past had helped me uh, control my glucose, and so I asked the di diabetes educator, can I do a low-carb diet? And she said, absolutely not, because once you're diabetic, there is no way that that will work for you. And hmm. and you're not to tell anybody else in group that because <laughs> right. um, because if, if you do that and it causes them to, to go off the diet that they're supposed to eat and start eating this extreme diet and become sick, then I'm in trouble and, you know. It's an extreme diet that man has eaten for millions of years. <laughs> it's very, yeah. very fad diet. It's yeah. like the orthopedic surgeon in uh, Tasmania who was accused of inappropriately reversing <laughs> diabetes. How yes. dare you yeah. inappropriately reverse yeah. your diabetes? How dare you, sir? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I think that I'm glad to hear that the American Diabetes Association might be backing off their strict uh, mm. requirements for carbohydrate high carbohydrate consumption on a daily basis. But, you know, they have, um, you know, the last two years in their annual meetings, they really um, almost have, there's been no discussion of the low carbohydrate diet on mm. any of the panels. Mm. I know that when Sarah Hallberg, who um, did this study that recently came out with results showing 60% reversal of diabetes after one year on a ketogenic diet. Yeah. 
she was allowed a poster session about her her um, her paper, and that was all. That was the only low carb presentation a couple of years ago. And you know what makes wow. me feel a little cynical about that group, and probably the one in Australia as well, is is just that you know you you look at what the presentations are all about. They're all about new drugs, new devices, mm-hmm. like you know, and the one that Sarah went to, it was here's a. A, was like medically sanctioned bulimia a sack you would carry oh, right. around on the outside of your body that would be surgically attached oh, so yeah. that it would get it would absorb take the food before it went through your gut i mean it's ridiculous that's who funds the american diabetes association mm. and so i think that they um are getting to a point where you know it's it's not scientifically sound to say that low carb mm. is is not uh yeah. is to, to call it a fad dangerous diet that is that is scientifically unsound mm, and right. Um, but I think it's going to be hard for them to shift to this, to actively promoting that as a as a good option because it will defund all their funders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what's the pathway forward really for that? Do, do we literally have to just keep jump, jumping up and down and with the science in our hands until they eventually look at it? I don't actually know the answer to that. I can tell you some ideas or a number of people who think that there ought to be a class action lawsuit right. against some of these associations. I don't know if that's viable. Um, but you know, or even helpful, right? I mean, I would like to see the American Diabetes Association and all these groups that have, you know, established these huge behemoth organizations around, um, pharma and all of that stuff, just downsize to the right, um, to the right size that doesn't, you know, when, when you have the, the therapy Mm. without drugs and without all this stuff, you don't need all the stuff that they do. Is there yeah. ever a bureaucratic instinct to contract? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think so. No, I'm not arguing for the most confrontational route forward. I mean, hopefully, there can be slow change. Mm. Um, when, and I just don't know. Um, I, I think it's just a question of how long people really want to wait mm. um, for to allow authorities to, you know, comfortably move to a different paradigm. Mm-hmm. To me, there's an urgency, you know, you, yeah. the latest numbers on the cost of diabetes, not to mention the suffering, you know, the amount of suffering, but they're like mm. over $350 billion a year that we spend mm-hmm. on diabetes. Mm-hmm. And the standard of care doesn't do what the ketogenic diet does. They don't actually bring your blood sugar so low no, because the stand- they're afraid. The standard of care is to medicate us till our HbA1c is around about 7. At least that's what it is in Australia. That's yeah. the standard of care. And um, if your HbA1c is at 7, you're being medicated into a still diabetic state. Mm. They don't want to medicate you lower and for good reason because they they run the risk of overcorrecting. Mm. Um, and if you overcorrect somebody, uh, somebody's glucose, you push them into hyperglycemia, which is a very dangerous mm. medical condition. So it's an, out of an abundance of caution that they choose to medicate diabetics into a further diabetic state. But the... The thing is, if your HbA1c is above roughly 5.7, you kill beta cells off. They're the cells that make insulin. You kill your beta cells off faster than you can make new ones. If your HbA1c is under that, you make new ones faster than you kill them off. And so it's that sort of, there's like a a knee to the curve or a slippery slope that starts at 5.7. And they're medicating us to seven, you know, that it's a hopeless situation. Whereas a, a ketogenic diet will get people with an H, HbA1c from 4.8 to 5.5. Yeah, my, my liver medicates me to 5.5. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, what they're doing is is just prolonging a disease, right? right? And it just makes you. And then, I mean, I'm not diabetic, but I know that that you are. You need ever increasing amounts of insulin to get mm. the same results. So right. your body is just becoming more and more. Ex- you're exhausting your pancreas, yeah, and sure. and and so and then you have more and more. Yeah, and then that's just a steady path to decline and for and death, really mm. early death. Um, and and if you go by um, the standard. You know, they. I guess if you if you're diagnosed with diabetes and you go to to a doctor and they they basically give you your carbohydrate target <laughs> to meet, <laughs> yeah. and then um and and if you follow that diet, their their rate of reversal is 0.1 percent. Mm. That's how many people they can actually get to no longer be to be cured on on the diet, American Diabetes Association diet versus. The ketogenic diet yeah. with the one that, um, again, Sarah Halberg led that study at one year, 60% reversal. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Right? And 94% got off some or all of their insulin. Yeah. Right. And there's uh, something like 87% adherence to the diet. I mean, there's no diet that has 87% adherence right. to it. You, yeah. you could have the diet of eat whatever you want. That still won't have 87% <laughs> adherence. <laughs> People are going to get sick yeah. of that. <laughs> I want some st- structure to my life. <laughs> can, can we talk about fat? I know. It's a touchy subject for you, Nina. Fat makes you fat. I know. It's just terrible. Look at all these fat people. They shouldn't be eating so much bacon. Um, so, uh, I, we know the the famous Minnesota coronary experiment, which you like to talk about, that right. you just uncovered all this great stuff, or, or somebody uncovered all this uh, hmm. Christopher Ramsey. Hidden, yeah. hidden research. Are there any other bombshell studies that we haven't talked about that, uh, you know, where somebody wanted to prove the diet hard hypothesis and ending up proving the null uh, hypothesis and and it wasn't forthright in sharing their their work their results um, well you know there's um, I think a story that hasn't been much told about the Framingham study which is okay. was the largest ever study very famous study that was a Framingham as a community outside of Boston where mm-hmm. they selected a group of people. Oh, I can't remember the date, probably, you know, the 1960s, but, you know, decades ago. And they followed them over time and they measured everything they could measure. And then they f- saw who died of a heart attack. And so, right. it was a way of measuring risk factors. Yeah. Um, you know, was it cholesterol that correlated with death? Was it LDL, HDL? What was it? Um, mm. One of the things they did was they looked at people's diets. And um, they they did very rigorous um, intakes of people's diet, and they really took great care to try to check and see if people self-reported dietary data, which is notoriously unreliable, yeah. um, whether it actually correlated with what they were actually eating, um, mm. and um, and they that that portion of Framingham was um, came out in the late 1970s, and it didn't actually come out because what did they find? They found that saturated fat was correlated with l- the more you ate, the lower your cardiovascular risk. Hmm. Wow. Saturated fat, they could not condemn. Wow. And that study um, was the only volume that didn't get published and sat in an NIH basement. And I don't know who unearthed it originally. I have a copy of it, but it was it was... Uh, Tavia Gordon was the 
the researcher on that. And the other person that worked on it was George Mann, right. who famously yeah. went to Africa to study the Maasai warriors. And, mm. and he also worked on that study. And that's what made him a skeptic of the diet heart hypothesis. <laughs> and that's mm. also what helped end his career. Yeah. Wow. Um, because he would speak out about it. And one of the stories that I tell him, yeah. he was ostracized. And one of the stories I tell in my book, I actually talked to him when he was in his 90s in a nursing home, and he wow. he was just as sharp as a tack, and he, well, he was hugely bitter about what happened to his career, because he sure. had a very promising career at Vanderbilt University as a biochemist, mm. and he said that, told me a story about, but he did become a vociferous critic of Ansel Keys, and he said, well, one day, I was at NIH headquarters, because he was one of the leading researchers on this Framingham study, and the secretary pulled me out into the hall and said, if you continue your opposition to Ansel Keys, you're going to lose your research grant. And shortly wow. thereafter, wow. he did. So the whole staff knew about it. <laughs> I mean. Oh, yeah. yeah incredible. I mean, it was, it was known. It was just that they couldn't. It was just one of these what we call inconvenient results. Right. Right. Like the, they can't handle those results. It would, it's like, you know, the study that would come out today showing meat is good for health. You know, nobody could hear it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Don't right. publish it. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> So that's another one of those stories. Um, there's so many stories like that where people, scientists have talked to me about studies that they uh, couldn't get published, results they couldn't get published, um, results they didn't want to publish for mm -hmm. fear of, of hurting their careers. I mm -hmm. mean, that Minnesota coronary survey, which I've talked about before, where they didn't publish their results for 16 years, and it was the largest ever test of Ansel Keys' hypothesis. Right, right. That's By Ansel Keys himself. By Ansel Keys himself. <laughs> right. And they came out with their results, you know, they couldn't find anything wrong with saturated fats. Right. Didn't they find that it was protective? Or was that another study I'm thinking of? Well, later on, Christopher Ramsden, this NIH uh, professor, went and looked. He actually went into Ivan France's basement and got out those magnetic tapes yeah. um, that the he? data used to. He was, along with Ansel Keys, one of the, the project, yeah. yeah, one of the lead, lead researchers on the Minnesota Coronary Survey. And right. he had kept in his basement these magnetic tapes that Christopher Ramsden from NIH went and got those out of the basement, reanalyzed them. They had to reverse engineer. The, the data format <laughs> yeah and, sure and build magnetic readers to see from scratch to we're be able it to do guys that. we would be yeah, all really? over that. so that yeah that's that's, wow. that, that's that'd be a fun project that right would be there. a fun project for a weekend <laughs> <laughs> get a couple electrical engineers yeah i'm yeah. sure there's a lot of other unpublished data around but what what he found was that um the more the men lowered their cholesterol the more likely they were to die of a heart attack Wow. And that had never been published. Yeah. Among men, I've heard, I've seen I've seen figures of, among women, women. That, and this yeah. was, this elderly. Was, yeah. This was just for the the men. Well, this is not just a correlation. It was men who had actively lowered their cholesterol, right. successfully oh. in a trial, lowered their cholesterol gotcha. that had actually caused mm. cardiovascular <laughs> death. Wow. So, but I, I just wanted to say that that the other thing that I recently learned from a friend of Ivan France's when Ivan France was alive was that. He told this friend, the reason I didn't publish that study for 16 years yeah. was not that we were just lazy or whatever. He he said it was because I knew I would never get another research grant. <gasps> wow. Right. And that's the sort of, that's the censor, the self-censorship that yeah. happens in a field like, the chilling like effect. this. The chilling yeah. effect, right. Yeah. And that explains a lot. 
actually, uh, as Tom Naughton says, follow the money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's about people's careers it too, is. because yeah. this person who told me this is a is a um, epidemiologist um, mm. at a at Columbia University, and he said, and I asked, I kept asking him, like, why do epidemiologists not, you know, they understand a relative risk of. 1.17 is so close to one is to be, you know, there's no effect, yeah, but right. that's what, that's the, the, that's what the WHO has used to condemn meat for causing cancer. Yeah. Like, right. Where are the epidemiologists saying this is wrong? This is not, you know, our, this is not good for our field. This right. is not good science. And he said, we cannot write about it because we will never get another research grant yeah. because the people who are at NIH who control our research grants, they are on board with, this policy and they, they, they're not going to, you know, we can't change it. Like we cannot speak out about the science. So one possible solution here could be uh, private patronage. I mean, high net worth individuals coming in and helping to fund some of these things um, to, uh, to break the, the deadlock that the NIH has over. Yeah, it's possible. But the NUSI, the organization mm. started by Peter T and Gary Tabbs tried that model yeah, right. and really, I would say, Failed. Kind of backfired on them. They just were not successful. I mean, it's just, I think that, um, I th you know, the problem with selling that idea is that clinical trials are so expensive and they take so long. And even if you're a billionaire, you know, to spend $50 million for something, you won't have any results for another eight, nine years. Right. And then will you really have an answer? I mean, so many clinical trials kind of just go wrong. Mm. Yeah. So it's just it's a hard sell, yeah. Um, and um, but I don't know. I mean, there there are these like consortiums of of companies that put together their money, and they're supposed to put it kind of in a blind trust, and they use that money to fund studies. Mm. When it's you're hard. when you were writing your book, the big fat surprise, which by the way, I didn't even I knew it was like Economist Book of the Year, but there's several other. Um, Book of the Year, well, Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Mother Journal. Jones, yeah. Forbes, Library Journal, something called Kirkus Review, which is a big deal if you're yeah. in the book world. Just in case you didn't know, <laughs> listeners, yeah. Yeah. it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, when you were doing that, you obviously had to look at a lot of science and, you know, that's that's your thing. And um, Zoe Harcombe, when we interviewed her, gave us a few tips for how to spot bogus science. So I'm I'm wondering if you could speak to the lay people who get the random Facebook share about you know the latest oh uh, red meat causes diabetes or anything right. like that or something that smells fishy and alternative to what we know and what we've studied. How do you spot well, it? I'd love to hear what Zoe has to say. But you know what I um, the advice I tend to give people is anytime you see in a newspaper or a magazine or any kind of uh, uh, media is associated with or is linked to. Yeah. Uh, you, that means that data comes from obser an observational study that can show only association, not causation. Mm. That data is just so inherently weak for about a thousand reasons. But one <laughs> of the, the main one is that it relies on what's called food frequency questionnaires where people are asked what they eat. Right. Or and eight. Or eight over the last, like, what did you eat over the last six months? Yeah, I'm not kidding. Year. Yeah, like, how, do, how many, how many peaches? How <laughs> many pears a week? How many? How much cheese? How much? So, 
it's just such notoriously unreliable data. People, right. not only can people, most people just can't even remember. Yeah. yeah. But then the other thing that's actually been confirmed in studies is people lie all the time yeah. about their what they, they tell you what they what what they think that you want to hear what they, they ate. what they yeah. wished they had eaten. Especially if they are nurses or healthcare professionals, they're not going to tell you <laughs> that they <laughs> ate McDonald's every day. <laughs> that's are they? right. They just say right. I ate high. You know. I, 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 I did exercise, but I, I stopped smoking because I know those are bad. And I also ate this, but, you know, secretly they're eating. They're know. eating something else. I mean, I did it when I did my own, f- when kept my own food diary. I would like yeah. cheat a little bit <laughs> because you just don't want to think you're that person yeah. who's doing So, and so that data is not reliable. They actually, one of the interesting things they find, the fatter you are, the more likely you are to cheat on. So, yeah. I mean, all kinds of things. And people always underestimate the amount of sugar that they're eating. Right. Sure. So, that's what this these studies are based on. Like when your doctor asks you, how much do you drink? And you yeah, say, oh, right. one drink a day yeah. <laughs> times 10. <laughs> no, um, well, one thing that Zoe told us, which was great, and I think a lot of our listeners got educated, was you got to look at relative risk versus absolute risk. And you right, brought up relative risk just a few minutes ago. And that's where the difference between group A and group B um, for a particular outcome was, you know, 50% more uh, with with the one that is supposed to sound bad, you know, 50% more risk. Right. And when the absolute risk is 0. 0.001, right. <laughs> you know, of group A and p- group B is 0. 0.0015, yeah. you know, right. it's like, oh, 50%. Yeah, that's like, that's a trick that they take from the drug trials where, yeah. um, I mean, just to give a real life example, the, the WHO decision about red processed meat causing cancer, that's mm. based, um, so a relative risk of 1.18. So, one means there's no risk. Mm. And but it and this is one point one eight. So right. that's tiny. That's like a tiny percentage point more. It's probably nothing because anything under a relative risk of two or three or four or five, depending on you ask, is just random margin noise. Of error. Just yeah. margin of error, random noise. Um, and just as a side point, like who is eating red meat? People who are eating red meat are unhealthy in a number of other ways because those are people who have ignored their doctor's orders, you know, yeah. over the last 30 years. Unless they're like low carb like us and they get it. But uh, yeah, some tiny minority of people. Yeah, very like tiny us. minority. But this is a massive confound though, isn't it? Because these people have unhealthy diets. They've ignored the, they've ignored the advice to, you know, to eat white meat and vegetables and, right. and so that's not the only advice they're ignoring. And so, right. so that's exactly it. it. People who smoking. eat red meat ignore their doctor's orders in every way. They're called the <laughs> non-adherers, right? right. They're, they, they, they tend, and this has been measured. They tend to smoke more. They, they uh, are heavier. They don't exercise as much. They don't do things like go to the symphony with family members, which right. is you're supposed to do to have <laughs> cultural events yeah. to like, yeah make your seed be a happier person there's and in so many other ways that you can never measure right yeah, so yeah. they're just unhealthier people um all around except for this small group like you <laughs> right. present company excluded yes, present yeah. company excluded so <laughs> but so that's what you're measuring in and and even then it's this tiny 1.18 that mm, was the mm. increased risk of eating a few eight processed meats and right. the who said that was you know 18% increase, which right. kind of does sound like a scary number. Yeah. Yep. But that's the relative risk. The absolute risk is, you know, less than point, you know, 5% um, mm. difference. It's wow. so tiny. And um, 
And, you know, one has to wonder, though, you know, why are they going with this misleading data? And mm. it's almost always because, you know, scientists want in their studies, they want to have something that sounds impressive. A drug right. company wants their drug to sound like it's a blockbuster. Right. So. Um, and also the source of funding is another thing that we talk to our listeners about. If you find out who, you know, who paid for the study. Sometimes it's listed, sometimes it's not. How many conflicts of interest are declared? If it's two right. pages of conflicts, then yeah. you, like the Barilla study that came out recently about pasta. Yeah, a Barilla study, a Barilla pasta <laughs> company who had funded yeah. all the researchers involved and their conclusion was pasta is good for <laughs> weight loss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, you know, funding by a food company or industry does not automatically invalidate a no, study. Sure. I think like it's hard because again, as we talked about, it's hard to get funding to do right. anything. So industries do fund studies and then it's still fair to like look at the data and see if the data look reasonable. But right. you know, if there's a conflict of interest like that, it, it is a little flat going <laughs> up. I know that um, Harvard is a notorious uh, or, or anyway, in the, our circle of friends, we hear about Harvard sort of doing this a lot. Chan school of... Uh, <laughs> but are there any studies that um, come out of Harvard that are are well done? I mean, it's not you can't just say because it's Harvard that the the science is bunk. Well, so this um, a science is this observational science that shows association but not causation and mm. is notoriously unreliable. The the two major databases are both at Harvard. The Harvard School of Public Health publishes almost exclusively these epidemiological papers, oh, okay. these observational papers. So almost everything that comes out of that school is this is associated with that. Right. And the thing about Harvard is, even though it's Harvard, um, <laughs> they have uh, one of this called the nurses health study and the other is the men's health professional study. So first mm. of all, those are not normal populations, nurses right. and doctors. Right. Mm. That mm. doesn't represent the rest of us, no. right? Mm. And also um, the Harvard leadership has is strongly anti-meat. Right. I mean, there's just no way around it. Like they're mm. that conclusion. Like they published the Mediterranean diet pyramid in 1993. This is Walter Willett who did it. And mm. he put meat up in the teeny tiny tip of that pyramid above mm. sugar. Yeah. So you can have less meat than sugar. Wow. Based on, you know, anybody who's gone to the Mediterranean, Greece, Italy, mm. you know, they're not They're not eating they're a lot not of sugar. Skimping on meat. <laughs> and they're eating plenty <laughs> of lamb <laughs> and skimping on So the but that's his yeah. bias, you know. He right. um and he also there's no milk on yes. his pyramid, which yeah. is also not true, I think of of what, you know, what has been documented in the Mediterranean. Um mm. so there's there's just a a, a vegetarian plant-based bias mm. in that school that you see in all their studies. Their yeah. studies are all, you know, everything's bad with meat. They also don't like potatoes. Right, they yeah. do a bunch of studies, um, uh, papers that they put out on French fries where they don't isolate the effect of the vegetable oils that the French fries are <gasps> right. fried in it's versus incredible. the potatoes. They're just like, <laughs> potatoes are bad. Yeah. yeah. Here's the French fry data right. to show it. <laughs> uh, so why don't they like potatoes? Are they gateway drugs to meat? <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, French fries, I mean, for some reason, you know, French fries and hamburgers are just like the poster children sure. for bad eating, right? Yeah, yeah. right? French fries must, be, I mean, I think actually probably, you know, if you're not diabetic or overweight, it's mm. perfectly, you know, potatoes are fine to eat. Sure. You can tolerate them. And sure. if they were fried in lard, yeah, which right. is a stable fat, yeah. I bet you they're really good. Yeah, <laughs> or, or tallow, the right. McDonald's like fries used to be. So we, every once in a while, get a message on the forum or an email or whatever from vegetarians who are trying to do a ketogenic diet or vegans 
and um because and and sort of ding us for not talking about that more and you know we i think the last response i gave was well i'm not a vegetarian so i can't really speak from experience and most of this podcast is about our experiences Mm. but but i'm sure you get this a lot too and we talked to you the last time about it uh it's doable but uh for for plant based sources of fat, avocados and coconut oil, but do you, is there anything that um, anything new in the world of keto vegetarianism that you know of? Well, I do. I know it's possible. I mean, I know a, a friend, a spine surgeon, who is on a plant based keto diet, and she she is a type one diabetic, and she feels better than ever Excellent. on her plant only based diet. I know. Wow. Um, and that it does require a lot of a conscientious planning mm, to that, make sure yeah. that you're getting all the nutrients and vitamins that you need because right. many of them, uh, you know, especially your B vitamins and your folate and your iron, they're not as digestible from plant sources or they don't exist in plant sources. Um, I recently spoke to a meat scientist um, who said that there is some proteins that you cannot get in plant foods. And right. his advice was vegan is okay. Your body can probably get along okay without everything it needs if you are a grown up. You know, one mm. of the things that you do is you store things in your body. Sure. Um, right. And that's why you can survive periods of famine. And, mm, sure. and so you, you but, but for, for women of childbearing age, if you're raising children, they need all their full supplement of proteins to grow properly. Right. Um, so I, you know, I think that it's not recommendable, mm. not recommendable <laughs> for, uh, for raising for children. And you were a vegetarian for a while, weren't you? Yeah, I was a vegetarian for like 25 plus years, but I wouldn't say that I was a strict vegetarian. Okay. I, I didn't eat red meat and I didn't eat butter and I didn't eat many eggs. And, um, I just kind of avoided most protein foods. <laughs> <laughs> there was this, an Australian study once that showed that uh, something like 40% of all vegetarians, when they get drunk, ha- will have a souvlaki. Or it, this is an oh, Australian right. thing. So like, uh, <laughs> uh, d- uh, straight outside the pub, there's the the, ve- the street vendor selling souvlaki. Selling souvlaki <laughs> the, too, the, yeah. the, I could go for a yeah, kebab yeah, right yeah. now. <laughs> it's a sneaky one. <laughs> so. I've also heard that the, the, the gateway food, I guess the exit gateway food for <laughs> vegans is bacon. Right. Thing that like oh, right. lures people yeah. away from yeah. their, yeah. um, yeah. No, I was really not very healthy on that diet, but I wasn't a conscientious vegan or a sure. vegetarian in the sense that I didn't really, I didn't know anything about nutrition. Mm. I wasn't working hard to try to stay, mm. uh, I didn't know how to stay healthy on that mm. diet. Yeah. And I will say that in animal experiments where they've done in the 1920s and 30s, when they did animal experiments on mice and rats trying to understand if they could sustain an omnivore animal on a purely plant-based diet, they had to be exquisitely careful about how they balanced all their nuts and seeds and germs and pulses and everything to keep those animals healthy. Mm. And even then they didn't live as long and their, their children, their offspring did not live as long. Right. So epigenetic effects. Yeah. Mm. But it's just easier. It's easier just to stay healthy on if you have, animal foods because that's where so many of the nutrients are and they're more bioavailable in that form which is we are animals yeah. it makes sense that that, that you know that that food made from animals is going to have a lot of raw materials that we can use to build that body well there sure. are herbivores you know there are herbivore oh, animals yes, too yes, true yeah okay, <laughs> we're just not herbivores thou art not a rabbit yeah i, I intend to actually try uh, keto uh, vegetarian uh, I'll, i'm going to go ovo 
vegetarian. So I'll eat eggs right. um, for choline and, and other nutrients. But uh, I'm going to try vegetarian for uh, for a month. And then the month after that, I'm going to go carnivore <laughs> because there's, <laughs> there's no way I can do a month of vegetarian without knowing that I can go carnivore the next month. Have you done that? Though, no. Just the all meat diet? I'm going to try that. Yeah. I've done it for like a week at a time and it yeah. really works wonders for me. But um, that's another thing. Have we talked to you ever about fiber? I don't know as if we have. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, you know, I haven't researched it in detail. I mean, I think that um, there there is some work to show that the fiber requirement is the result of studies that were funded by carbohydrate companies. Oh, okay. You know, grain, wheat. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think that the idea that your body requires fiber is contradicted by um, the fact that there are, you know, human populations that survive very well without plants and vegetables, as right. we know, you know, a number of those. Um, there's the year-long experiment that was in 1928 of those two men, including mm-hmm. um, Stefansson, who were on their meat-only diet, meat and fat diet, you know, yeah, they were supervised right. at Mount Sinai by yeah. a team of medical professionals. Six papers resulted from that year-long experiment. Found them in perfect health. There was mm-hmm. absolutely nothing deficient. And didn't um, they like go back and just do it themselves after that? They said, "We're going to yeah. continue this because we feel so good." <laughs> they felt so good. Yeah, I mean, part of their experiment, like for a few months, they were medically supervised at the hospital, and then they were sort of what we call ad libitum, which is they were out right. and about. Mm. Um, but they, the only time they felt sick was when they they weren't getting enough fat. And they got, yeah. they went too lean on their diet and then right. they started to feel, uh, tired and nauseated. And then they said, but it was just completely fixed by having some brains fried yeah. and fat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buildup of ammonia is the, probably the, the most likely cause of that. And, uh, when your yeah, protein's too lean. Because you're using protein for energy. Once right. you use it, once you've got an alternate source of energy, you don't have to use protein for energy. So you're not making no. all these nitrogen compounds, which, right. Yeah, but it's uh, certainly a high-fat diet can be protein-sparing. <laughs> right, <laughs> sure. What else are you working on these days that uh, we should know about? Um, well, so right now I'm I'm pretty much devoting most of my time to this group, the Nutrition Coalition, mm. which um, – <laughs> Yeah, well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Uh, well, uh, well, long may it the, live. Tell us the goal of the Nutrition so, Coalition. It's a group, it's based in Washington, D.C., and it was born out of the um, understanding that the dietary guidelines, which is um, our government's guidelines, are just so power, have such a powerful control over what we think is a healthy diet. Like, right. And it seems, like, how can that be true? Like, nobody I know goes to a .gov website to look up their diet, right? <laughs> right. And, no, and sure. so, but the reality is they're just downloaded they're in so many ways throughout the whole system. So, every doctor, every nutritionist, every dietitian, every nurse, every healthcare practitioner on the front lines, if you go to them, they're just, they're just downloading the dietary guidelines, mm. too. They're just telling you the dietary guidelines. I mean, the vast majority. And, in fact, in many medical practices, they're not allowed for medical liability reasons to give you anything but the so-called gold standard right. dietary guidelines. Mm. In fact, I know this one doctor who's who's low carb herself and she's so frustrated by this that she says she takes the my plate graphic which mm. <laughs> for people in Australia who don't know it's like it's it's our graphic that shows what you're supposed to eat. Yeah. And it's 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 half a plate of it segmented is, up. Yeah. It, it's ha- she just crosses out half of it. She's <laughs> like just don't eat that half of it. Good on it. Um <laughs> but um it's so powerful and and 
after I uh, wrote my book and I, and, you know, the, so the guidelines come out, they're supposed to review the science and they come out every five years. And mm. I looked in the 2015 expert report on the dietary guidelines and I read all 491 pages and I yeah. was like, well, where's all the science that right. I've just been studying for the sure. last decade of my life? Like none of it is there. Mm. None of like none of it. Um, and how is it they have these continued caps on saturated fat, given that there are all these review papers now showing the data never supported that hypothesis and where's mm -hmm. the low carb literature? Right. Yeah. You know, at that point, there were 64 clinical trials on low carb. None yeah. of them were there. <gasps> so, wow. what happened? And then it was just the most convoluted, contradictory docu scientific document that I had ever right. read. And I've read a lot of really bad science now. So, so then I, after analyzing that, I wrote up a cover story for the British Medical Journal and sort of critiquing this report saying, that this, the recommendations are not supported by the science, right. basically, right? right. Sure. And that the vast majority of clinical trials that have been funded by governments around the world have never been reviewed, mm. never been incorporated into any of our guidelines, mm. <laughs> like just ignored, dismissed, right. silenced. So, that article... Uh, endeared me to everybody around the world, and and 180 scientists tried to retract that paper, but it didn't. But at the end of a review, they stood by it, and they stood by it pretty strongly. Mm. But it still remains true that we have terrible guidelines. That um, they 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 continue to have caps on saturated fats, which um, are the rate limiting thing on our being able to have like regular dairy, you know, mm, and sure. just regular meat. Yeah, they don't have a low carb option. There's no, they, all of, they mm. have three so-called dietary patterns, Mediterranean, U.S. style, and vegetarian. Yeah. And all three of them are 50 to 55% carbohydrates. Wow. 50 to 55% of your calories is carbohydrate. And this, this drives all food del uh, delivered by the, the military in, in schools and across the nation. You're, you know, the elderly in nursing homes, what you eat in hospitals. Mm, yeah. It's, um, it's, you know. The military, all, schools. The military, right. Yeah. Everything. And it affects the whole food supply. So ever since we've had our dietary guidelines, all cattle, all pork bread to be lean, low fat milk. Mm. Right. And it's totally changed the whole way, you know, mm. their eating patterns across right. the world. So our group is basically trying to, educate policymakers and people in Washington about the problems with the guidelines mm -hmm. and trying to affect some kind of change. And you've got them. like two years to the next guidelines, don't you? Yeah, well, they're in 2020 is the next version. Uh, oh, so, a year and a right. half then, yeah. Not Almost, very long. Yeah. Wow. And this is a group that we can donate to if we want to support yes, your cause, you right? It's the, yes, please do. It's nutritioncoalition.us and there's a lot of information there and you can sign up for our newsletter. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to state we get no industry funding we refuse to get, you know, take any funding from any interested industry. And so we rely on donations from people. So like here's your listeners. chance, listeners, if yeah. you want to be a part of something big, Help some big change, yeah. this is your chance to do it. You got two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's because, you know, what's so important to everybody is that their own health and the health of their family. Yeah. But, you know, but what about your elderly parent in the nursing home? And what, if, you know, who's suffering from dementia? And what mm. about your child at school? And what mm. about the military who's fighting on your behalf? And what about, I mean... There's so many ways. And what about the fact that all your employees, the absenteeism of your employees is all based on like <laughs> yeah, right. the fact that they're home having a carbohydrate coma. You That's know right. I mean? <laughs> couldn't deal with life, ate a bag of Doritos, yeah. <laughs> ate some Oreos. Yeah. So it really affects everybody. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, I think one of the astonishing things about the work so far is just that, 
you, I mean, inside what we call the Beltway, which yeah. is, you know, is inside the DC world, like they have never heard these ideas. They wow. just, it's been the food companies wow. and, you know, the public health community, which is still all about right. calories in, calories out. And Americans are just being, you know, too lazy to follow the guidelines, right. blaming Americans. And that is the conversation. Well, thank, so, you, thank you on behalf of the rest of the world for absolutely. bringing the, that inside the Beltway because this is something they need to they need to hear about and it, it needs to at least be an option. Yeah. Well, it takes a village, so I need <laughs> yes, people to does. participate. And I'll tell you actually one thing that we did recently, which is kind of, which I'm proud of and, and, and illustrates why we need everybody's participation is that um, the USDA, which is the agency in the, our government that runs the guidelines, they actually said this go around that they were not going to review all the science the way they have done badly in the mm -hmm. past, but they were going to select certain key topics that they thought were worthy of review, mm -hmm. which I translate as meaning we know Cherry our guidelines pick. are out yeah. of touch yeah. with yeah. what the science actually is. Yeah. Um, and on that list of topics, which wasn't very long, were the low-carb diet. Right. And saturated fats. Great. So we put out a call to all of our, you know, friends and supporters, please ask your people to send in public comments because they right. asked for public comments. Right. Oh, wow. So for one month, there was a public comment period. <laughs> and um, at the end of there were about 6,500 comments. Right. I, a, a third to a half of them were from our people. Wow, <laughs> great. Wow. Well because, done. I mean, as defined by, uh, you know, they mentioned that they talked about saturated fats and they talked about the low carb sure. diet. Sure. Can you comment on the U.S. News and World Report list of the, uh, you know, making the ketogenic diet the bottom of the list for the best diets in the world yeah. <laughs> that you should follow? Yeah. U.S. News and World Report is a magazine um, in the U.S. and they do this every end of the year. What are the best diets? And they had like 44 diets and the number one diet, they had a tie for number one. That was DASH, which is the diet to re reduce uh, sodium, sodium yeah. and, and tied with the Mediterranean diet. But it wasn't really the Mediterranean diet, was it? No, it's like a low-fat <laughs> version of the Mediterranean yeah. diet. But they – and at the very bottom of the list was the ketogenic diet. Right. right. So, you just – you know, you look at who's on their so-called expert panel. Right. It's Dean Ornish? <laughs> what? Was Dean Ornish on? I don't know if he – but it's like, you know, it's all the plant-based diet people. Yeah. yeah. It's just that gang of people and they are – and so Gary Taubes and I wrote a, an op-ed about that in the LA Times. Right. And we just we just 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 look at the evidence dash mm. this diet, which has been favored forever by the American Heart Association. Right, right. Tested on, you know, maybe twenty five hundred people, all middle aged, all uh and and in studies lasting no longer than six months, mm. shows no effect on weight loss. Wow. And it it the only thing it does is it reduces blood pressure if you are high blood pressure. And they, all of these people right. that they were testing it on ha, were all hypertensive. So it's right. not a regular population. No, no. A hypertensive, you reduce the Hypertensive middle-aged yeah. people. Well, if you're hypertensive and you're a glucose burner, yeah. salt, reducing salt is the only thing you can do. Yeah. And, but your kidneys are still holding on to a, an inordinate amount of sodium. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but nothing for weight loss, nothing yeah. for diabetes. Mm. And in terms of your the cardiovascular risk factors it caused ldl to go down that's you know considered mm. a good thing but all of but in all those not. studies mm -hmm. well let's just give them that but uh you know in all those studies the hdl your good the good cholesterol also dropped right so in if anything it's a mixed outcome yeah 
or just a bad outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the DASH studies. The Mediterranean diet has mainly been tested in one study funded by a bunch of food companies in Spain. Mm-hmm. And that actually diet that was shown to be, you know, good for cardiovascular outcomes, but nothing on obesity or diabetes. Now, yeah. when you say cardiovascular, do you mean reducing cholesterol, LDL? I, I think, no, or? they actually had hard outcomes where they looked in. It was, that's another thing where, you know, it was like a mm. 0.2 reduction right. in risk. Okay. As defined by a combination of, of what's considered hard endpoints like uh, heart attacks and stroke. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. Like you said, it was a high-carb version of the Mediterranean diet they were talking about. It wasn't, you know, a Malhotra's Puapi diet by any means. Right. You know. Well, the one in the Spanish study, actually, it was a 41% fat diet, mm. which is probably why wow. it showed better That's, outcomes yeah. okay. than, yeah. than – and was, was was compared to a low-fat diet. Well. Mm. Really, any diet looks better than a yeah, fat diet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Mediterranean, maybe Siberian. As I say, like maybe re- if researchers wanted to go to Siberia and study yeah. their diet, which yeah. is higher in fat, I'm sure it would look you better could, than a low fat. You could diet. live on earthworms and have yeah. a better outcome, probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> fry them in yeah. butter. I think one of the things that that we can tell from associational studies, because this is this is all associational data. No, well, not that Mediterranean is an actual uh, clinical oh, trial. It was a clinical trial. Yeah. Okay. So, but it showed a small outcome, a small, di- a small, a small difference. Yeah. First year only of a five year right. trial. Yes. Mm. A lot of these uh, observational studies, however, um, one of the things that we can tell from those, even if they have small results, if there's a, a lack of, of correlation shown, then we can infer a lack of causation. And that's mm. the case with the pure study that you mentioned. The, um, the evidence against carbohydrates from that study was like 1.28, which is, Inadequate. I mean, it, th- this is the same uh, number as uh, the same uh, risk as the evidence showing um, a, a positive association for for whole grains that the Dietitians of, uh, Association yeah. of Australia use. Right. Um, I mean, these are all small small numbers below the Bradford Hill standard, which is a twofold. If it's above two, then you can start thinking, well, there may be some causation involved. Mm. If it's like seven, yeah. then you know it's like cigarette smoking and lung cancer. You but know. it warrants further study. That's not any kind of right causation. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a hypothesis generating activity. Yeah, right. right. But the uh, the one thing about the Pure study, they actually showed that there was no correlation between saturated fat and all of these hard endpoints that they were looking for. And if there's no correlation, there cannot be a, a – you can actually infer. Right. It's at, that, that is adequate to infer no causation. So, right. you know, that's one thing. I mean, the Pure study, when it came out, it you know, it came out and said carbs were carbs were good and, 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 and no, carbs, carbs were bad, bad and fat is good. And, and a lot of people in the low-carb – Right. Uh, community thought that. Hey, was a this thing. is great. Yeah, I got I got sent to me by on yeah. Facebook by all my friends who were like, "Hey, guess what?" And, and we were we were like, "No, that's yeah. just associational data." <laughs> you Bad know, science. You well, know? so yeah, and it's a really this is going back to like tips on how to understand science. So mm-hmm. if some two things are positively correlated with each other, mm-hmm. that shows an association but not causation. So like in this pure study, carbs were associated with higher rates of death, but that's yeah. enough to show causation. Right. Yeah, it's not. There's really only one observation that has ever been, the magnitude has been big enough to prove, to effectively prove causation, and that's mm-hmm. smoking and lung cancer, yeah. where heavy smokers had 10 to 30 times more risk of lung cancer than non-smokers. Yeah, yeah. 10 to 30 times. In yeah. nutrition epidemiology, that number rarely gets above two. Hmm. Huh. So, yeah. so those associations are just tiny, very weak. And as you know, and because the data is so weak about, you know, these food frequency questionnaires, just likely to be nothing, noise. Mm, right. But again, it's positive correlations like uh, 
caffeine's associated with heart disease. Right, um, right. You can find those positive correlations really in anything. You know, right. I found one the other day. If you eat margarine in Maine, you're more likely to get divorced. If, you, <laughs> if you're an internet user, you're more likely to have breast cancer. I mean, there yeah, have been yeah. jokes done on this where yeah. people take like zoological signs, I mean, yeah. yeah, astrological signs and say, you know, if you're a Leo, you're more likely to get uh, liver cancer right. or whatever. So, <laughs> but where there are negative correlations, like, the more saturated fat you eat, the less likely you are to suffer from a stroke, which right. is what the Pure study yeah, found. That so is, that yeah. contradicts the idea that saturated fats could be causing stroke, right? right, right Here's yes. another one for you. Red meat has declined by 28% in America since consumption since uh, 1970. Diabetes has gone through the roof. Yeah. Right. Can red meat cause diabetes? Clearly, Clearly not. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So, uh, is there going to be a sequel to the big fat surprise? Maybe the bigger, fatter surprise? <laughs> <laughs> you know, right now I don't have time to write another book because I'm doing this work in Washington. But yeah. I do hope to write another book. You know, yeah. there's so much to be written about, or or maybe my book in a slightly different way. I've been thinking about, you know, it's, I, there are a lot of people who can't read a big mm -hmm. long book. So yeah. I was thinking of, you know, maybe talking about different diets and their histories and just really um, mm -hmm. showing the, the relative amount of data behind each diet. Will you revise it if new studies come to light and new things change? No, I, I'm firm in my views and I will never change uh, <laughs> according to the evolving data. <laughs> let, let me just say to the listeners that Lena used a sarcastic font when yeah. she said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, you know, what are the big questions out there right now, which I think, you know, we're in, they, we're really on a kind of frontier in terms of some of the low carbohydrate questions, like, mm. you know, why you know, how, low carb works for some people, but it doesn't work completely. And what kind of carbs and, you know, drive uh, these diseases? And mm, how sure. do you reverse out of these diseases? You know, many people, they can't really quite reverse out of disease or they, there isn't really mm. a cure. I think that's where the evolving science is going to be and will be really exciting. I agree. I think we're learning a lot about stalls. You know, people go on a low-carb diet for, uh, you know, several months and mm. then they lose a lot of weight and then they sort of hit a plateau. And we both did that. And it seems like every single one of the 20,000 people in our forums, uh, the ketogenic forums, has done that. And, uh, you know, nobody really knows why. I mean, we have hypotheses and Richard has a really good hypothesis. I have one that I plan to test, but it's going to take me three years to get to that <laughs> point. Right, right. So, you know, but, but since it happens and it happens to... A lot of people, you know, the, in the meantime, before we know, just stop beating yourself up about it, man. Mm. You just like ride it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, people use that the that issue of stalls as to say that it doesn't work, right? And um, it's like every and you know, and then you you get the New York Times writing another five thousand words on all <laughs> diets fail, um, yeah, just right. to make everybody feel especially hopeless. <laughs> um, yeah. But we know it works. Mm. We just know it's not perfect. It certainly doesn't work as bad. You know, it works better than a low fat diet. We know yeah. that, and it really works well. I mean, it's bizarre. You know, I. Um, myself, just like I was on a stall for like two years, mm. all of a sudden, poof, mm. 10 yep. pounds gone. Well, same with no explanation. Same with me. Same yeah. with me. I lost about 20 pounds uh, very rapidly. So, mm. me too. You know, a couple of, yeah. I thought I had cancer. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> no, it's just, you know. But, yeah. you know, well, also, I, people I think are, are tr uh, conditioned to when you stop losing weight, 
ah, screw it. I'm going to go have whatever crap food inserted yeah. here. And they, they, it's a learned hopelessness. It's a yeah. learned hopelessness. And they don't realize that, no, no, you just got to sort of hang on there. I mean, I've been at the same weight for a year and a half. Yeah, but you've lost. And I'm still, yeah, I've lost inches. Yeah, and I've, You've lost 80 pounds. Right. And you've kept it off for three years. That's yeah, two, never, yeah. two years. That 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 puts you in the top five percent at right. least. But I could easily most people don't. But I could easily have said, "Ah, oh, what's the use?" and just gone back to eating McDonald's and good point, yeah. and pizza and stuff. And that'd be, and then I'd say, "Ah, oh, the ketogenic diet didn't work for me." Yeah. But I, it turns out that uh, it's very easy for me to stay on it. So mm. I'm riding it out, and I hope you guys will too. <laughs> yeah. Well, well Nina, I think thank it's the you. best hope. You know, this is one of the things, and I recently had a conversation with a top, top nutrition scientist who was going on about, you know, he was saying, well, this is the latest thing. You know, obesity is multifactorial. It's so complicated. We mm. really don't know, you know, maybe diet sodas, maybe this. And I just said, like, look, mm. this is the best hope we mm. have for curing obesity with the largest body of data behind it is the best hope. Why not just rather than like research erythritol and in yeah, like, right. why not just go with where the data is most hopeful right sure. that seems to me like a perfectly logical thing to do right people are looking for a product or or something they can sell that's going to be a, a pharmacological yeah. intervention or a heroic surgical intervention this is yeah. Yeah. this is where we 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 focused on not me no. bacon <laughs> butter and eggs right sounds good <laughs> all right thanks nina thank been, you been thank a pleasure. you both it's always great to talk to Nina, and her work in the Nutrition Coalition is so important. Uh, she's such a pro. She is such a pro, but, you know, one thing she didn't do is beg for money, mm. you know, and they do need support. Yeah. So we're going to uh, put a link to that, Nutrition Coalition, and mm-hmm. uh, if you feel like uh, supporting it, you can do that. We yes. do. And that brings us to recipes. Hey, you didn't ask me if I was feeling puckish. <laughs> yeah, that's right, puckish. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I almost said male. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is the part where if you're fasting, turn it off now. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go first today, and I'm actually going to do a recipe that I did probably, I think it was the first or second episode of the podcast, Uh, and this is an omelette. And what I'm going to try and do is try and do some basic recipes. Uh, Some people have asked me, you know, uh, yeah, we like your recipes, but they're way too complicated. You know, they use fancy chemicals and stuff. What we really want to know is how to do basic cooking. And so this is a recipe that probably I used uh, maybe 90% of the time for the first two years of keto. For breakfast every day, this is if I ate breakfast, this is what I yeah. eat, and it's basically a royal omelet with ham, cheddar, and avocado. And the way that I make this is I start off with uh, with a, an old Vegemite jar. You can use a peanut butter jar. Mm-hmm. You basically what you want to do is you want a jar that you can put a couple of eggs in and shake it up and uh, very quickly beat the eggs. Um, and uh, mix the yolks with the whites. And so uh, I put a skillet onto a burner to start getting my pan hot, and I put a little bit of bacon fat or a little bit of butter in there because what you Mm. want to do is you want to get the pan lubricated because when you put the eggs on, you don't want them to stick to the pan. So you want them to move around a little bit first. And so um, and eggs cooked in bacon fat is just Mm -hmm. bliss. Eggs cooked in (laughs) butter is pretty good too. 
cook your bacon first and then cook your eggs. That's one way of doing it. Yeah, so I crack the eggs into the jar and put the lid on the jar and shake it up. Uh, and then I I basically want to get to the point where mm. I don't see whites and I don't see yolks. I just see, you know, a, a, a solid yellow color. And then I'm going to mm-hmm. crack, I'm going to open the jar and I'm going to add a little bit of cream. I add about a, a tablespoon of heavy cream. This is what makes an omelet a royal omelet. You don't need to have, add uh, cream. You can add water. You can just go dry, you know, just not have any any liquid at all. What you end up with then is a more drier um, omelet. Sure. I like to add the cream because it makes the omelet loose and it's it's I, I, I like the texture of it. But, you know, you should play around with it a, a bit. But th- this is this is a recipe that you're going to mm. be able to do day in, day out. It's delicious. Richard, this was the recipe on the first show. I remember this. The Om Nom Nomlet. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Om Nom 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 Nomlet. Yeah. So uh, basically, yeah. I, I also put a bit of salt in. You want right. to season season the uh, the mixture. Rather than seasoning the egg at the yeah. end, um, you're going to season it if you've if you've gone too short on the on the salt late, uh, at the end, but ideally you want the salt throughout the mixture, and because you, you, your palate will will know the difference. And of course, you can put anything into it that you normally put in omelets. Yeah, well, I put in a bit of parsley and chives uh, into the jar, um, but um, okay. I'm going to I'm going to stick with the omelet itself and then fill the omelet later on. So so I'm so I'm going I've got a, I now have a hot pan. It's been uh, uh, dressed with a little bit of fat. Uh, you don't yep. need a lot, half a teaspoon of, of butter or half a teaspoon of bacon fat. It's enough to, to, to coat your pan. I'm going to throw the egg in there and right. um, and basically turn the skillet slowly, allowing the egg to fully set. So what you want to do is that the egg that's touching the, like the hot pan will set up. But you 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 just want to move the pan around to, so that the so the yeah. liquid get exactly like a crepe. You want the liquid to get to the entire surface of the of the of the pan, and at the edge of the pan, the egg mm. will start to come up a little bit and off the edge. And you that's that's a, a point. If you're going to flip the omelet, I don't yeah. flip mine all the time. But if you're going to flip it, that's where you're going to get the flipper underneath uh, the egg. And um, so I, even if I'm not going to flip it, I'll run the uh, flipping utensil around the outside of the omelette uh, so that it's going to break the adhesion to the skillet. Now, you have the option of flipping right. or not. If you don't want to flip it, what you're going to have is the inside of your omelette is mm-hmm. going to be moist and it's going to be, it, it'll be set. but It'll it, be it, tough. It will, yeah. it, it'll be cooked, but it, it, it you know, it, it won't be sort of... Uh, Hard like yeah, outside of an omelet, yeah, exactly. And then, so what I do is I I, I mm-hmm. put a little bit of uh, ham on the top of the omelet, probably about ten grams of smoked leg ham, uh, about fifteen grams of cheddar, about twenty grams of avocado, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to put over. them in the middle of my omelet, and I'm going to just gently. Uh, tap on the handle of the omelette so that the (laughs) omelette just sneaks over folds over and it's it's a it's a it's a clever trick but it works it works Mm. really well but yeah you can use a skillet you can use a a flipper if you want to uh to get it over there and that's my uh ham cheese uh and egg omelette um and you know that for me was breakfast for that and just a just an espresso coffee was was breakfast sort of nine times out of ten uh whenever i ate breakfast so uh, for the first two years, yep. So uh, 
And I'll have the recipe on the on the links. So that's my recipe. What do you got, Carl? Well, uh, I am cheating this week. I'm taking somebody else's recipe that I saw. <laughs> and uh, I made it once and it was pretty awesome. So mm-hmm. this is at sugarfreemom.com. And it's keto fathead low-carb pizza rolls. So mm. three indications that this is low-carb. The word keto, the word fathead, fathead yep. the words low-carb. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't want to miss any uh, SEO, yeah. right? <laughs> so these are pizza rolls. So if you think of cinnamon rolls, how they look in a pan, you know, they're all sort of rolled up and bunched up against each other. That's how these yeah, look. Like so it's, mm. Yeah, so it's like mm. a, a, a pizza roll. That's it. Mm. So yep. the dough is... Sort of fathead dough, but it's a little different. She uses coconut flour instead of almond flour. So here are the ingredients for the dough. You want two cups of shredded mozzarella, three ounces of cream cheese, three quarters of a cup of coconut flour, and then you take half a teaspoon of Italian seasonings and a quarter teaspoon onion powder, half a teaspoon of garlic salt, half a teaspoon of xanthan gum, a tablespoon of baking powder, and two eggs. For the filling, you're going to use a half a cup of Rouse marinara, right? Or she also has a recipe there. Uh, eight ounces of mozzarella cheese sliced or shredded and two ounces of pepperoni slices. Now, one roll is four net carbs. Okay. So okay. You, don't yeah. want to, you probably don't want to pig out on these, but be good if you are jonesing for some pizza. So for the dough, melt two cups of shredded mozzarella with the cream cheese on the stove top until combined or in the microwave for a couple minutes. You want to stir in the remaining dough ingredients and wet your hands and mix it together as best you can to form a dough. I find that when making fathead dough, I just put everything in the food processor and the mm. the, the heat from the food processor is enough to melt yeah. everything in place. Sure. Mm. So you want to roll this between two pieces of parchment paper to the size of eight by 16. Your oven should be at 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Now you spread your half a cup sauce over the dough, lay the sliced mozzarella over the sauce, and spread out the slices of pepperoni. And you roll it up the long way and Mm -hmm. cut it in half and cut it in half and cut it in half so that you get 12 pieces. Nice. You want to lightly spray an 8-inch pie dish with olive oil cooking spray. Or, you know, if you don't have spray, just use olive oil and paper towel or something or your hands. Mm -hmm. Place the rolls in the pan and top with the remaining sauce, if you have any left over. Yeah. So you want to bake that for 25 or 30 minutes, or until brown on the edges. And the secret here is baking powder. Baking powder makes even fathead dough rise and get puffy. Right. And that's that's really cool. So mm. now you just allow it to cool for about 10 minutes. Otherwise, they're going to be too cheesy when you pick them up. All the cheese is going to ooze out of them. Yeah. And enjoy. Mm, nice sounds good yeah it was pretty good well that's a show um thanks to nina teicholz it was great being in new york and interviewing you as always nina and uh richard i'm i'm glad you're back in the saddle and it's uh it's it's good news you know (laughs) what your brother did Thank you. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute, anything we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at twoketodudes. Make sure to use the hashtag twoketodudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.twoketo.com and you can have a look around the ketogenic forum without needing to create an account by starting with success.twoketo.com. 
That's our big success thread. It's pretty inspiring. And if useless swag is your fancy, like t-shirts and coffee mugs and all that other junk, head over to gear.2keto.com. Which definitely does not have any assless chaps. (sighs) (sighs) Cheap shot, man. Cheap shot. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free... Join the 2 Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2keodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. And you can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And check out my cooking videos at carlsketokitchen.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And my friend, keep calm, keto on, and fast when you can. Uh, keep calm, keto on, Carl, and definitely fast whenever you can. And we'll see you at Keto Fest and next week on, on Two Keto, keto Dudes. Dudes.